Today's sponsor is Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the next mayor of San Francisco, but in my spare... Recall. No, not yet. Later, you'll come after me. But in my spare time, I talk tech. That's Steve Case, of course, being a pain in the neck as usual. And you are listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Now, today in the red chair, it's a special day for me. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm here with my oldest internet friend, Steve Case, the author, apparently he's tried to write a book himself, mine did not do, of a new book called The Third Wave, which is about the next wave of the internet, which is actually based on a lot of things we had discussed in his book a long time ago. Steve was the co-founder and former CEO of America Online, you might have heard of it, AOL, and then chairman of AOL Time Warner. In 2005, he co-founded the investment firm Revolution, which has backed companies ranging from Living Social to Zipcar to Handy. Steve Case, welcome to the show, Good and it's to we're be together with you. again. Exactly, this Putting is the so band exciting. Back I know. Together. Do you remember where we met? Do you remember when we met? Oh, geez, at least twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, more. Still the Washington Post before right. you abandoned Washington. More than for twenty Silicon years ago. Valley. I know. I know. We were in your office in Vienna, Virginia. So maybe twenty behind years the car ago? dealership. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah I know. We've known more. each other a long time, and at the time, you told me you were going to be. Bigger than Time Warner, I think, or something like that. You said something like rather bigger than AT&T, and you, you had a little small company that was sort of hobbling along, and we that's where our relationship began yeah, with online services. think big. I know. So talk a little bit. I want to talk about your book in a second, but let's talk about sort of where you came from, because the, the impetus for this book was on something that inspired you, Alvin Toffler's The Third Wave. Right. So explain to us what how that affected you, and then we'll get into talking about the well, book. I was in college. I was senior in college, 1980, and mm-hmm. read this book by uh, Toffler called The Third Wave. And I was just mesmerized by mm-hmm. it. This was, he was talking about this notion of electronic cottage, new ways to get information, communicate with people. Uh, and you know, this was before the internet really was a concept that people were aware of, uh, but I was, I, I was sure he was right, and so I wanted to move in that direction. How did but, you get your hands on the book? You weren't a computer engineer, correct? It was just a, it was you were a business a, student. Uh, I was not. It was, I, I went to Williams College of Liberal So you just drank, Hills. essentially, just no. and drank. Is, right. is that where we're going to go here? No, yes, we are. I can turn the tables points. here I and understand talk about that. this alleged uh, mayor run thing. You know, no, that, it's that, 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 that It's going to happen, and you're going to be one of my biggest backers. I actually think it should happen, because that will fuel the rise of the rest, the fleeing of people from Silicon Valley to mm-hmm. move to other parts of the I country. I see. Okay. All right. We're moving along. I can play offense. All right. Okay. You be mayor of D.C., and I'll be mayor of San Francisco. How about that? I'll pass. All right. So let's get back to you. So you're in college. You're reading Alvin Toffler, which was an influential book at the yep. time. And there was Future Shock. There was a whole bunch yep. of them Future like that. Future Shock before that, but the, yeah. the, the Third Wave came out in 1980. And why did that strike you of all the many things that could have struck you at the time? Because that was the time of big finance. People were going to Wall Street. Everyone, if you remember, it was all right. the hotness of Wall Street, essentially. I just thought it was going to change the world. You know, the idea of the internet. The, of course, we take it for granted now. But, but it wasn't called the internet, right? Yeah, it was. It was, on, you know, it was he was calling electronic cottage initially right. in the eighties. It was called online services, and mm-hmm. when we launched America Online, our competitors were CompuServe and Source and, mm-hmm. and Prodigy, things like that. That was called online service. It wasn't until nineteen ninety one that it was even legal yeah. to connect consumers or businesses to yes. the internet. So it took that. The eighties were more that experimentation phase. But just reading that Toffler book really uh, you know, kind of set me on the path of trying to figure out how to 
get the world online because I so, thought it was a powerful uh, idea and just wanted to be part of it. You, had you been a geek in high school? No. You no. grew up in Hawaii? Grew up in Hawaii. And, uh, it was not uh, particularly, actually, the one computer class I took at college, I almost flunked. I hated it because uh-huh. it was still that era where you you know you worked with punch, punch cards. cards yeah. and I, it was just, I We're dating it was ourselves. And, and, uh, I know I'm dating myself. but uh, and, and So I just wasn't that interested in that side of it, uh-huh. but I was interested in figuring out how to do what I could to create this medium this electronic Had you used digital. any electronic services then like that? Or uh, no? 1980 I had. By, I, the, I started 1981, 82, mm-hmm. you know, kind of toying around, got a computer, figured out a way to connect this peripheral device called a modem to the computer so it actually could connect. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. well, you know, that, that dial-up dial sign I still yeah. love. It gives me... It I, does. I, you know, I should have that be my alarm in the morning. <laughs> That's <up> true. <laughs> uh, the, 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 I just wanted to you know, experiment and finally, I, as you know, moved out to the D.C. area mm-hmm. in 1983 to join mm-hmm. a start up that promptly failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but two years later, Jim Kimsey and Mark Seraph and I started, well, became uh, AOL. So it took me really five it. years. You put it, I think Jim Kimsey said you put the company in a drawer and then pulled it out of the, another drawer. Well, yeah, that's, that's one way to look at it. Okay. Yes. All right. It's uh, Control Video Corporation. Correct? Initially Control Video. And then, then, as you know, the first five years or so of of uh, that company was really private label services. We worked mm-hmm. with Commodore and worked with Apple and Tandy and, and IBM. And it wasn't until 1990 that we really kind of launched, uh, uh, relaunched as America Online, which became AOL. So it really was a decade from the time I read that Toffler book to the mm-hmm. time, you know, we really, you know, really got going with uh, with AOL. And so one of the lessons even I talk about in the book is the importance of perseverance. I think mm-hmm. revolutions happen in evolutionary ways. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you'll get lucky and it'll be an overnight success. And you saw some of those in the Second well, we'll wave, but I think, they'll, I think they'll be rare in the third wave. Because of the difficulty, the level yeah, of difficulty. Yeah, it's challenging. If you really want to kind of, in our case, really want to get the world online, you had, there was a lot of things you had to do to, to make it easier to use and more useful and more fun and affordable. It just takes time. If you want to change how kids learn in classes, it's going to take time. If you want to change how hospitals Which you have been trying it, to do. You've yeah, done a lot absolutely. of projects. So let's talk about the first wave, because let's stay back in the first wave, because that's what you're calling. The first wave is what? Is first the, wave, just getting getting everybody online, building the right. internet. and. Uh, as you know, we started uh, AOL in nineteen. So that's Only AOL, 3% Microsoft, where people are online an hour a week, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so a lot of companies, Sun and mm-hmm. Cisco and others, kind of built the software and the servers and the networks and. And just created the on ramps to the internet. And so, what would you care? People. Why do you call it the first? What do, what do you characterize as important in that era? Just building the internet, building awareness. It started kind of mid '80s uh, as something nobody knew about or cared about. Mm-hmm. By the end of that first wave, around 2000, everybody was online, and it had become an important part of their lives. So, you, it was you a could shift. argue that AOL really was the company that. I mean, a lot of there had been a lot of attempts. There was CompuServe and um, Prodigy, and I think it was a Prodigy, which was Sears and IBM. Right. And I used to call it everything Sears knew about computing and everything IBM knew about retail. It was just a disaster. Right. But, you know, AOL was the first one to break through. And I, th- I, I still have the foam finger that you gave out that said, uh, so easy to use, no wonder it's number one, exactly. which I thought was kind of brilliant. The yeah, idea yeah. that it's easy to use was the pushing point of that. Well, we, we pushed the ease of use. I used to joke that we needed to make it easy enough for my mom to use and, mm-hmm. and you know, how to make it mainstream. She didn't particularly like that. She said, well, like, why don't you pick on your dad? He, he, <laughs> I know more about this stuff than he does, which is true. But the point was we wanted it to be something for everybody. We were trying to democratize access to information. We are trying mm-hmm. to level the playing field. We wanted the world to get online. So it required a lot of things to make sure it was something that was kind of something that really would strike a chord with everybody. When you think back to that time, what, think of something that you did that you wish you hadn't done and something that you think you did brilliantly in that era. 
well, obviously, in 15 years, we did a lot of things that we liked, a lot of things we didn't like. Thing, the thing that was probably most important was figuring out this exactly this point about ease of use and then figuring out a way to make it easy to try it. Our whole idea of the, the discs. of the free trial disc, the things mm-hmm. that, you know, that would, I would say I regret, particularly in a later stage, mm-hmm. uh, as we went from dozens of people to hundreds of people to thousands of people. You know, the culture did start to you know, change, and it was a little bit more you know, moving away from the pioneers passionate about the idea of the medium to kind of more, I would say, a little more mercenary kind yeah. of people there because it was a hot company and they they wanted to make money. There's always going to be that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in How do you battle that? How did, how did you? It's tough, and I don't think we you know, did it particularly well, but it was also, I think, when we went public in 1992, the first internet company to go public, we had less than 200 employees. Mm-hmm. And eight years later, we merged with the time where I think it was 5,000 employees. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it went from dozens to hundreds and then quickly to, to many thousands. Uh, and it was just the nature of our growth rate and trying to go from, I think when we went public, had a, I remember the number 184,000 customers. Mm-hmm. And then seven, eight years later, it was 20, 25 million customers. Right, so right. We, by definition, we were going to add a lot of people and needed to expand their array of services we're offering and brands we had and, and so forth. Uh, but you know, the, the, one of the takeaways, and, and certainly it's true with the, the merge with Time Warner as well, is the importance of people and culture. Mm-hmm. Arrogance was one of the things accused that you were all accused of. And, yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. I mean, I you don't know, think we were intending to be arrogant, but I think we probably were perceived as being difficult to you know, to work with. And, and uh, I think one of the lessons I talk about in the book for big companies, particularly successful companies, is how do you figure out a way to reach out beyond your walls and mm-hmm. figure out a way to connect with and hopefully partner with innovators around the edges and make it easy for the entrepreneurs to work with you, not, not hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember you're, you had used to have these big get-togethers with the providers, the right. content providers, for example. We had, yeah, we had a lot of partner conferences with different yeah. different uh, folks because, again, this was the early days of the medium. We weren't, we weren't just building a company. We were building the medium. And so there was a lot of education required even as you know i used to write these monthly letters yes to people love members. that i felt a little bit like the mayor of the community not uh-huh. just the ceo of the company we're uh-huh. trying to make sure our members our customers were part of this and felt like pioneers people did have a relationship with you it was interesting yeah. it, one of the things that i found interesting and the reason i got super interested in it is gene right. who you're now married you had me out there to visit the quilt makers remember that aol right, sure. quilt and the ladies had met it was all ladies had met online and had made a quilt just online. They had met each other. They had become right. friends online. And then they loved you. They kept petting you and sort of giving you cookies and saying, we made you a quilt. And it was a really fascinating yeah. thing because they had a personal relationship with you that was purely digital, which was, I thought was yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, I think, I think it was uh, reflective of the core focus we always had, which was we believed the killer app of the Internet was people. Uh, and uh, we used to call it community. We thought content was important, commerce was important, connectivity was important, we called the C's, but the most important was community. So our focus was always on whether it be people connection chat rooms or instant messaging and buddy lists and things like that. How do we connect people, both people who already know each other and want to stay close, and as well as people who don't know each other but have a shared interest and, and would benefit of being connected. So that was always for us sort of the, the focus, sort of the soul of the medium, the core of, of AOL. And I think people did feel connected. It's also a way to make the, the service, the idea of the Internet, more accessible to, that to more about people. The it wasn't about the, you know, the technology. It wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't scary. It was friendly. It was inviting. It was fun. And you, one of the things also, though, it has a backlash, too, when you had that outage. I remember we were together, yeah. and I thought it was going to be enormous, the backlash. And at the time, you're like, oh, it's a weekend. No one cares. And No, it was pretty bad. It, it, it was, was bad, bad because people cared about it. Well, it, it was sort of, it was... It was, 19, was it 19 it, hours or something like 23 that? Hours. 23 hours. And, and I think it's it got a good news, bad news, as I say in the book. The bad news is we really let people down. People, we had told people this was an important medium, and they should trust AOL, and they should do their email on it. And, and a lot of people were conducting their business on it. 
And we were down, and they couldn't do their, you know, couldn't stay connected, couldn't remember get their were, business done. Remember, you were debuting work at AOL too at the time. Do you remember? I don't remember that. I but, do. Uh, so the, it was uh, that side was really, really disappointing, frustrating. We absolutely let people down. On the yeah. positive side, it was remarkable that if just a few short years before, yeah. nobody knew what we were doing. They love you or so much, cared. they hate you, right? Well, so. if we had been down for twenty-three days, ten years earlier, nobody would have cared. Nobody yeah. would have even known. Yeah, uh, and had gone from something nobody knew about or cared about to something they couldn't live without. And it was, as you remember, the lead. Story most of the yeah. newspapers. You were and, surprised. You know, TV. I yeah, it was sort of like, wow, that you know, you know, I guess the internet has arrived, AOL has arrived, but it also reminded us that we had to, you had to hold ourselves to a high bar because the expectations yeah. were high as people started truly integrating this in their lives and really you know counting on so it. So one of the things that's important is AOL was really a pioneer in lots of areas, IM and communications right. and community. But you know, there's an expression: the planes are covered with the bodies of pioneers. You would call AOL Facebook of its day in a lot of ways. I mean, if you think about it, there was a yeah. lot of that going on. What happened? And then I'm going to get into the book, the second wave and the third wave you think is coming. But right now, looking back, how long has it been since that merger happened? 10, 15, 16 10. years ago. And then it fell apart, right. essentially. What was the one thing you think, I know you've been asked this a lot, if you reflect right now, that happened there, that occurred? Uh, the one thing that happened that didn't work was people and culture. I mean, mm-hmm. The idea of the merger was sensible then and sensible mm-hmm. now about mm-hmm. convergence of technology, some of the things that have happened Wanting in the last to get 16 the cable. years, like Skype okay. and the iPod and and uh, Netflix and, and Facebook and yeah, Twitter. There's no and, mobile at the time. And, and so forth. You know, those, those were the things we were talking about doing, and there's no company that was better positioned to lead the way in digital music and company that owned AOL and owned Time Warner Cable, the largest cable system, owned Warner Music, the largest music system. So the ideas were there. The potential was there. Uh, but we just weren't able to get people aligned around the right priorities and, and work together in a collaborative way. And so I, I referenced in the book this Thomas Edison quote, which for me really summarized the, the merger, which is vision – without execution is hallucination. Right. The idea of the merger, you know, made sense. The execution of the merger didn't, and that really was related to people. What did you do wrong? What do you think when you're talking about the execution? What? Well, as you know, I stepped aside as CEO to mm-hmm. have the merger, and I thought the right thing to do was to kind of get out of the way. So I mostly, you know, worked out of D.C., not out of New York, which was where their headquarters were. Because I didn't think, not just with Jerry Levin as the CEO, but also – other people, Dick Parsons and, and Bob Pittman and Ted Turner. There are a lot of you know a lot of people in, in the room and a lot of big personalities. So I thought the you know, healthy thing would be to step aside and not create any you know, confusion. So focus mostly on kind of managing the board and even AOL. I, I stopped going to AOL because I was no longer reporting to me. In retrospect, I think I stepped back too far, and I was perceived as being arrogant and kind of you know didn't really care about the company. And he it was got more, his money. You know, I, 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 sort of, uh, yeah, and I, I was a. Mistake. I did care about the company, but and I, I concluded that you know, the best way to make sure it can move forward was to provide clarity regarding leadership. So I should be less involved. But that ended up backfiring, mm-hmm. and people, you know, were were you know, mad and frustrated. I'd done a better job of building relationships with more of the executives. Better job of articulating where I thought the the world was going and why this company was uniquely positioned and brought them along. Yeah, you know, maybe it would have worked out better. Mm-hmm. And do you, again, you still think it was the right idea? Still yeah. maintain that it's the right Well, idea. both for, for financial reasons and strategic reasons, because uh, you know, when we went public in 1992, the market value was $70 million. Eight years later, when we did the merger, it was $160 billion, the best performing <laughs> stock of the decade. And we did think diversifying our mix of businesses and revenues and profits would be healthy, and that, I think, was the right call. And we also believe that we knew broadband was the future. We were the leader in narrowband. We didn't have a path to broadband. Yeah. You know, and Time Warner had the largest broadband those system. Those cable guys weren't going to help you. you know, well, I thought they would, but they, they cho- chose that they, they didn't. So on, on the face of it, it made sense both financially from a diversification standpoint and strategically. To me, that was the but, biggest problem. But uh, you, again, problem. you can't, you can't uh, 
it takes two to tango. And when it, we realized, I remember Rupert Murdoch told me this once right after the merger that, that it would be difficult to work with these different divisions. And as you say, you know, I thought it'd be easy for AOL to become the, the brand for yeah, Time Warner Cable instead of a Roadrunner, but they wanted to stick with, with Roadrunner. So yeah. the fact that we couldn't even get, you know, even the, the same company owned both assets, you know, get take advantage of the best known brand in the internet yeah. and to use it for broadband, uh, you know, was, was crazy. And then Similarly, they did it years later launched, uh, too late. launched uh, with their AIM service, uh, essentially Skype functionality a few years before Skype came on the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Time Warner oh, no, Cable everything. killed it. Time Warner killed it because they, mm-hmm. they were offering this, yes. this triple play. And the music, the music. I was just with a lot of people who were involved yep. in your music service, mm-hmm. which was very early and it got killed because of Yeah, it's sort of these issue. different big companies have lots of different priorities and, and they were focused more on protecting what was there as opposed to reaching, you know, into the future, leaning into the future and trying to create something out of this combined you know, you know, company. So it's a tough lesson for me, I mean, both on people and strategy and, and the need to make sure you align people around the vision and so you actually can execute against the, you know, the vision. All right. We're talking to Steve Case, the founder, one of the founders of AOL, the former CEO, is now an investor and has written a book called The Third Wave. We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Casper is an <laughs> online retailer of premium mattresses. <laughs> for quite a comfy. I'll send you one. Fraction of the price. Fraction of the price. That's great, Steve, but I think you need to keep your day job. I will do the ads from here on out. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the costs of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing on the savings directly to the consumer. Casper's mattress is a one of a kind, a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. And there's a risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. These mattresses are made in America. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. That's casper.com slash R-E-C-O-D-E and use the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. We're here with Steve Case, who I have known for a, what I would like to call a dog's age, and we're talking about his new book. He doesn't really need to be introduced. He's one of the pioneers of the internet. Um, and he has a new book called The Third Wave, and it's called An Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future. We've been talking about the past. Let's talk about the present and the future. You call it the second wave is now. Well, the Absolutely. second wave really been the last 15 years, and it because then the first wave, we were building the internet. Second wave, the we're whole focus it. was building things on top of the internet, particularly apps and services, particularly things on, on phones. And that's really been a exciting you know, kind of uh, phase. Uh, and there will continue to be opportunities to, to build apps and, and things like that. But I think the next wave, the third wave, is going to be integrating the internet in much more seamless and pervasive ways across every aspect. You call it the internet aspect. of everything. Yeah, that's beyond the internet of things, which talks about devices and sensors. Right. It's really the internet of everything. And you think about some of the most important aspects of our lives, like how we stay healthy or mm-hmm. how our kids learn or how we move around or how we manage energy or how we even think about things like food. They've changed somewhat in the first and, and second wave. Too. And, and, and you know, they'll change a lot more in the third well, wave, but it will require a different mindset. the second wave. It's been more popular. It's been more photo apps. It's been sort of light in a lot of ways, if you think yeah, about it. Yeah, I think there's obviously a lot of things have happened. But yeah, the center of gravity has been around apps, lean startups. And, and, and so and, and there have been a lot of overnight successes. So this idea of sort of the dorm room entrepreneur, Snapchat, Facebook, et cetera, uh, create an interesting product and it turns into something that gets virally spread and suddenly it is a major kind of global you know, platform. That's sort of been the the kind of the iconic right. know, kind the of Mark brands Zuckerberg and companies of, of, the, of the second wave. And hats off to them. They've built some great companies and, and the things that they've been created through that second wave, I think, are very 
powerful, but we still haven't really touched on some of the things that are pretty right. fundamental I, aspects I, of our lives. I have a saying that Silicon Valley, and I'm using this broadly in tech, is a lot of big minds chasing small ideas. I say that a lot. Like It has been. And now yeah. the big ideas need to be I think at. that's right. But, and I think I think part of what I argue in the book is, well, I love Silicon Valley. I'm proud of Silicon Valley. It'll continue to be kind of the leader of the pack in terms of innovation. I think you'll see a lot of the innovation in this third wave all across the country, what I mm-hmm. call the rise of the rest. That there, There's great companies being built everywhere. So it hasn't happened everywhere. yet, but it hasn't. It's bubbling. It's right. bubbling. And you're starting to see some examples of it, even you know, looking at the Silicon Valley side of thing, Uber put its driverless car operation in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Well, that's because that's where the professors that's, were. That's, be, well, that's because Carnegie Mellon's the best, you know, kind mm-hmm. of university in terms of robotic technology and understanding you know, uh, that. You know, some successful companies recently, like Under Armour, started as athletic wear, now doing a lot of things around health tech there in Baltimore. One of the hottest uh, VR companies. Yeah, in the world called Magic Leap, Florida. with billion dollars of capital, including Google, because in Fort Lauderdale, you know, Florida, you know, a company like uh, Exact Target was quite successful, acquired by Salesforce for three billion dollars. They're in Indianapolis. There's a mm-hmm. handful of you know, multi-billion-dollar kind of uh, SaaS software companies in in Provo, Utah. So we're seeing this develop uh, kind of quietly. I think it's just going to accelerate over the the next decade. Is, and the reason for that is because some of the industries that are most ripe for disruption like healthcare, are centered in the middle of the country, and mm-hmm. partnerships will become more important in this world. It's not going to be just about the software. It's not going to just be about the app. Partnerships with some of the incumbents are going to become important. I right. would expect some of those partners to, you know, the companies that are starting to be near those, near those partners. So, I also think you'll see spinoffs like in agriculture, technology, ag tech. There are a lot of interesting things happening in Silicon Valley and, and, and Boston. There are also a lot of interesting things happening in Louisville and St. Louis. Monsanto, for example, is based in St. Louis. They have tens of thousands of engineers. Some of those are going to go off because they understand farming, they understand you know, agriculture, Seeds and they're going to you know, be a startup so, scene in St. So, Louis around ag so tech. Talk a little bit about Silicon Valley. I mean, you could think of it in sort of a Game of Thrones metaphor, like they're Westeros, and it's a little corrupt there. Is it the things that there's not enough innovation happening there, or that it's sort of focused on the immediate, you know, the empires of Facebook, Apple, Google, which are all located there? Well, it's hard to generalize because obviously there you are some spent great. spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley as other I, entrepreneurs. I've, I've, I've you, spent a fair amount, but I, I spend but more of my time on it. the rise of the rest. I have more time, obviously, here in, in D.C. So I have great respect for entrepreneurs in, in Silicon Valley and investors in Silicon Valley. But I would say, in general, your point is fair that there are a lot of people focusing on on sort of, uh, I'd say, kind of the easy problems and you know things like uh, apps. Uh, and I think over the next decade. Food delivery. You know, a lot of things that are not unimportant but aren't as essential as some of the things that need to get some attention. But it will require, I think, a fundamentally different mindset, both for entrepreneurs and investors. I think perseverance is going to be more important. Partnerships are going to be more important. And policy, dealing with governments can be more important. Hey, people hate to hear that because, mm-hmm. you know, government's frustrating and regulations are, are cumbersome and so forth. But the reality is some of these sectors, whether it be health or or, or learning or, or food or, you transportation. Know, or, or transportation, drones, things like that, there's going to be some regulations associated mm-hmm. with them. And so the successful entrepreneurs are going to figure out a way to understand that and engage, maybe try to change some of the the, the rules of the road, but they recognize you've got to you know, figure out a way to you know create that innovation and the context of how it works in the broader society. And some of that's going to be engaging with government. Why so, hasn't, I mean, Silicon Valley definitely has an anathema to that kind right. of thing. And the and except the areas they're getting into, the companies that are now becoming major, I would say Airbnb, that, you know, the people are doubling down on the big bets like Airbnb, uh, Uber, some food technology is super interesting that's going on there. But, uh, you know, a lot of the health tech stuff that's going on and, Let's leave Theranos out of it for now, but there's right. a lot of innovative health tech going on. 
they really do, they start from a stance of fighting or aren't you stupid? Which I understand. And I think that one of the things that's great about entrepreneurs is they see what might be possible. And sometimes naivete is a competitive advantage. So not really understanding. No, I think I think it's it's fair to say like the founders of PayPal said if they knew more about the financial service business, they never would have come up with PayPal. I think that's true. But it's also true, particularly in the, the third wave, that you know, that, that naivete, that ignorance can actually get you in trouble. If you, and, and if you don't have some understanding of the industry, you don't have some, for example, you're focused on education, you don't understand how teachers are you know, dealing with issues or some of the challenges in hospitals for doctors, you don't have some respect for that and understanding for that, it's likely going to be more difficult to establish partnerships there. And if you don't have some understanding of some of the the policy issues you likely could get in trouble. Well, and the I, examples not, you make, like in Airbnb, they actually didn't need you know regulations to be you know, get into the market. And uh, Uber, they decided to kind of ignore the local it regulations. Hasn't hurt them. It and no, they, like they're, it's a great success. They're just it's rolling a, it's over. It's a great success story. But they metaphor. are blocked in. You know, they're out of business in Germany and South Korea. Some places where where the countries are deciding, not the localities are deciding they have a problem. And they now have two floors of the building we're in here in Washington, D.C., because they now recognize policy is, is front and mm-hmm. center. I think that is an example of a company that started thinking it was an app company, kind of a second wave company, and now recognize that policy is much, much more important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that's going to be more common in, in the third wave. So some entrepreneurs will just want to continue to do second wave app kind of things, and that's fine. But I believe the next wave of it's so insulting. You're so second wave. You're so not. Well, wave. I don't mean to be insulting, but I think because again, there's some really important things that have happened in in the second wave. But there's more, even more important things that so I think can happen. So let's talk about each wave. of those sectors: transportation, the Uberization of everything, the changing commuting. I mean, right here in Washington, right now, you have a subway system that looks like it's about to fall down. Correct. Obviously, what Uber's done is is phenomenal. But there's now a lot of people working on smart cities, both local governments as well as big companies like IBM and, and mm-hmm. GE are trying to figure how do you create smarter cities that better manage traffic and other other kinds of things and transportation is going to be part of that broader context that broader architecture if you will uh, and therefore it's good that the innovators in transportation are going to need to figure out ways to partner with some so of the what's the most innovative folks. thing you've seen in transportation lately speaking of smart cities I've seen a lot of different things but is well I would different? say in, in the in the last few years I think uber is certainly the one that, that you know struck a chord and has you know, reached the kind of a, a position of, of leadership in lots of different cities, lots of different uh, countries. So that is an example. That obviously, the other things would be Tesla and other people that have come up with interesting cars. Some of the things that a lot of companies, Google and others, are working on driverless cars. And that's a great example of something that's not going to work without policy. I and mean, how do you make sure that those driverless cars are really safe and, and the, you know communities are benefit from them? They, it's possible, but there's also some some risk that ties in with privacy and encryption kinds of issues. I think the government's going to make sure that these things can't get hacked into and, and actually create problems. Unless they're as, doing the hacking. Well, it, it's a, but this is, I know say like the, the Apple encryption issue is a big sensitive issue, but this is an example of why there needs to be more dialogue between the innovators and the Does it seem like it's getting worse if you're talking, I mean, because just now Microsoft just sued the DOJ over over data. It's going to get worse. It's going to get more complicated. The the issues that are now up for grabs in the third wave in terms of innovation are are cut at the core of what's important parts of our society. And so the government's going to be more at the table. I understand a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly in Silicon Valley, don't want to hear that. They they, they, like kind of bummed out when I say it, but it's true. If you Mm -hmm. really are going to take on some of these sectors, which I would argue have the opportunity to improve people's lives in pretty fundamental ways and also the opportunity to build pretty significant, valuable, iconic companies, it's going to require this different mindset, which is the whole reason I finally decided to write a book. Mm-hmm. And and when you're trying to talk about the way it's going to be, what happens to the current incumbent players that are it depends. powerful now? It depends. Part of my, argument, part of my argument is that the 
the incumbents can continue to innovate, but it's going to require not just innovating within their company, but around their company, almost building mm-hmm. a network, kind of creating an API around their, their company. So they are connected to innovative things happening around the, the periphery and look to partner with, with entrepreneurs. I think that's going to define the, the third wave. It's not big companies watching, you know, kind of on the sidelines, just engaging with entrepreneurs, but it's also going to require the entrepreneurs engaging with the with the big companies, this partnership is going to be a big deal. And I mentioned in the book that African proverb, which I love, which is you want to go quickly, you can go alone. If you want to go far, you must go together. And that's going to define the third wave. And oh, by the way, it also defined the first wave. Mm-hmm. As you know, companies like AOL wouldn't have been possible without that partnership. Yeah. We partner with network companies and PC manufacturers and content companies, hundreds of partnerships. That's what made the AOL and the Internet happen. And Are that's they partner reverse? I mean, there is this idea of the loan on the Mark Zuckerberg, the Steve Jobs, the well, the Steve Jobs is not partner adverse. I mean, the, no. the the success of iPod was only possible because he was able to figure out a way to engage the music companies. That, mm-hmm. that was completely irrelevant, dead on arrival, without licensed music. Mm-hmm. And so he figured out a way to you know, to, to do give that. Facebook as an example. Very powerful. They just had F eight. They just talked about a lot of various things they're getting into. These seems like they're getting into everything. I think they and they've done a great job of kind of focusing on the core and figuring out new markets. Just in the last couple of weeks on this on done this book tour, we've used Facebook Live a lot and mm-hmm. it's amazing to see how that, that idea is already kind of taking an hold. old idea too. It's an how old idea that and they but they've yeah. done a really good job of of executing against so, so these bigger companies, whether it be tech companies, whether it be you know, Facebook or Google or Apple or Amazon, obviously can continue to lead if they continue to figure out ways to innovate not just within but around their, their companies and lean into the future. I think that's true with the Fortune 500 as well, not just the tech companies but a lot of companies. That they're, and it's not guaranteed that they're going to lose their way. It's not guaranteed that they're going to be left behind. But it, it, they will be if they don't kind of understand what's happening and figure out a way to engage with innovators and part, you know, entrepreneurs to, to make sure well, their you, future is, is bright. Using that example, before we go to the next break, car companies now have gotten real aggressive into this auton- semi-autonomous and then the autonomous vehicle area, making partnerships, making deals. Most people feel they don't have the software chops to where things are going, and then they are against the Googles and the Apples of the world. Um, where do you look at that battle? Well, I think they're up. they're a little late. I think the car companies are investing heavily and making acquisitions. And we tried, I, Revolution invested in Zipcar probably 12, 13 years ago, the, arguably the first sharing economy car, the first kind of mobility company. And back then tried to partner with some of the car companies. But at the time, they were more focused on their core business and less interested in, in, in new businesses. And, and now they, they lost, a, you know, kind of an opportunity for the better part of a decade. The success of Uber, the success of Tesla has kind of woken them up. And, and, and they're, 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 uh, they're now being much more uh, focused on this. And, and I think there's still an opportunity. And some of them, I think, will seize it and, and be strong companies. And some will drop by by the wayside. This is an, obviously the nature of, of innovation. And one story I tell in the book, which I think is a wake-up call for these big companies, is the Kodak story. Mm-hmm. That when I was a uh, kid, you know, Kodak was the iconic American company and stood for photography. Uh, but then they went bankrupt because yeah. of digital photography. But the point I make is not that they didn't see it happening. They actually invented it. Engineers at Kodak invented digital photography, but they, they didn't really invest in it because right. they liked their core business and selling paper which is, and which is a chemicals. Common story. It's a very common story. You kind of could say that about AOL, too. It, it had all the pieces sure. of it and then and then lost its way happened. it lost its way it didn't it didn't keep focusing on the is future. that inevitable the lost it's not, its way it's not inevitable it, it, it's pretty common but it's not inevitable you have to keep focusing not just on managing the core business uh to make sure you have growth and profits and mm-hmm. so forth but you're 
leaning into the future and, and looking at entering new businesses. But I'm saying, is it possible? Sometimes it feels like, the, you know, we're in a situation where the young eats its old. Like, it just doesn't, it never, there's no company that lasts more than a few decades or, or less. I think that's generally true. And certainly the history of technology and even the history of Silicon Valley is still, in the grand scheme of things, relatively brief. But there are some companies. General Electric would be one. It's over 100 years old and constantly reinventing itself. And I think doing some interesting well, things now thing with the, the industrial internet and even moving to you know from uh, from Connecticut suburbs to downtown Boston to be closer to innovators and, and entrepreneurs. So there are examples of of companies that continue to reinvent themselves. And uh, but obviously it's hard. It's when you have scale, it's harder to innovate. It's harder to be agile. Uh, but which is why I call for in the book these folks not just to try to do it in, internally, but figure out a way to do it through a network around their companies. That's going to be make or break in the third wave. All right. We'll get back. We'll talk about that with Steve Case, the founder of AOL, and now he has a new book called The Third Wave. Today's show is sponsored by Walker Corporate Law. Are you an entrepreneur or startup looking for legal help with your financing, acquisition, or incorporation? If so, then you should consider checking out Walker Corporate Law. It's a different kind of law firm where they only have lawyers with 10 to 25 years of experience. That means you're going to get personal attention from a senior lawyer, not a junior lawyer getting on-the-job training. They also encourage fixed fees because they believe when lawyers bill by the hour, it rewards inefficiency. So check them out at walkercorporatelaw.com, or you can call the founder, Scott Walker, at 415-979-9999. That's walkercorporatelaw.com or 415-979-9999. I'd also like to talk to you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Hey, I'm Peter Kafka. Hey, Peter. I like being able to summon you to do these ad reads that we have to do. The reality is you can summon me into anything here <laughs> no, and I, I will can't. show up. So tell me a little bit about Recode Media. Who have you talked to so far? Recode Media is almost as good. No, you know what? It is as good as, right, uh, okay. as Recode Decode. I've talked to David Remnick. You know him. Mm-hmm. He's the New Yorker. I talked to Carly Zakin and Daniel Weisberg. They created The Skim. I just recently talked to Peter Gould, who made Better Call Saul, the awesome TV show. Well, you can find all these episodes and more at iTunes.com slash Recode Media. That's Recode Media with Peter Kafka at iTunes.com slash Recode Media. Thanks, Kara. We're here with Steve Case, someone I have known for a very long time. Is probably sick of me by now. Now, he's decided to write a book after I wrote two yeah, exactly. books about I him. I to correct the record. No, correct. I, what did I get wrong? Was there anything? I, I, I don't I see I you have the Eldon Edwards story, though, which I, I, I already Elwood, you got Elwood. that wrong. I'm I see sorry. you got I'm, that I, wrong. You know Elwood Edwards. It was right in the book. It was right in the book. <laughs> no, you, yeah, no, you wrote this book, what, 15 years ago? Oh, like my that? God. No, the reason I wrote a book now, you I might say I'm before. prescient, perhaps just once. Just well, possibly. you know, might also say that you know, Kara Swisher didn't exist though. she started covering AOL. And that, <laughs> we, we launched her yes, career, you, and then you once did. you got momentum, you abandoned Washington. Yes, DC. yes, you I did, but it was Silicon smart. Valley. Another but, genius. But now move. you're interested in politics. So who yes. knows? maybe it's circling back. You know, I like politics. Back. I think it's critical. I, I agree with you. It is critical. You. Exactly. The third wave is going to be about this intersection with between innovation and policymaking, and people don't really. Not everybody wants to understand that or be part of that, which is right. fine, but more and more people will because that's really where, where this is going. Well, you see an opportunity in San Francisco, all this wealth, all this innovation, and yet a city that has a lot of issues and, and shouldn't and should be a, a beacon for other cities. It's really an interesting... And I really do believe that Silicon Valley is very well positioned because of the talent, because mm-hmm. of the capital, because of this sort of fearlessness, anything is possible you know, culture. But I also think people will be surprised in the in this third wave, the next 10 or 15 years, how much innovation happens outside of Right. Silicon Let's Valley. talk about that, because I think one of the things we had, Eric Weiner, uh, who wrote the book about where innovation happens all over from history, from right. the beginning of history. And it does zero itself out eventually. There are things happen. People get self-satisfied. There's 
There, but it does. It moves. It just it, absolutely it moves. moves. And, and I say this without suggesting this is going to happen mm-hmm. to Silicon Valley. But no, it I re- is going to happen. Remind Steve. people that 75 years ago, Detroit was yeah. Silicon Valley. Right. It was the hottest technology city in the in, in the country, and then lost its way, lost 60 percent of its population, then went bankrupt because it kind of lost its entrepreneurial mojo. So these things rise and these things fall. Now Detroit is fighting its way back, and we've Trying. made some investments there. And the, I think what it's do you got invest in there? Shinola. Ah, the watch guy. I was yeah. thinking. Well, it's, it's it's a watch company and sort of a, a luxury goods company, and it, but it's really a built in America company. And the founder really started with the idea of creating jobs. And mm-hmm. how do you create jobs and prove that manufacturing is back in America and prove that you can you know, kind of build a, a luxury good brand that basically is, is crafted, handcrafted in, in America, and that in particular case in, in Detroit. So that's what was inspiring about it. It's going to be a great business. I think it's a very profitable business, but it's very purpose-driven in this whole idea in of terms impact of jobs. Investing. You've talked, you've done a lot with the Obama administration around jobs. Yeah. Where are jobs in the next century? Because I feel like people aren't going to have jobs because of automation. We just had Ann Wojcicki on talking about the lack of need for radiologists eventually because computers, deep learning, will be able to look at x-rays and be smarter than radiologists or you see this happening that and Larry Page has touched on it at Google then he backed off of it because it was a controversial thing to say is that computers will take over a lot of what we do I think that's true I think there's a risk of that and that's why people are a risk or an inevitability well I think in some sectors but Mm -hmm. I also believe there'll be other sectors where the interventions will create jobs Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the question is how do you maximize as many of those sectors as possible I'm not in the defeatist category that says basically you know every technology is going to solve every problem and and therefore we're not going to need teachers or doctors it's all going to be an algorithm i think that's ridiculous at the same time it's equally ridiculous to to, to hypothesize that technology is not going to hollow out some some jobs, particularly middle class jobs, and that's what why a lot of people in the country are kind of angry and frustrated. So you had they dealt with that. You had a jobs out. you were trying to push on. The, where yeah, are the, jobs of the future? If you're you're going into this third wave, what does well, that the, the mean? Number for, one thing, what do you need to do? The, the uh, this, this jobs council I was involved in, I guess four years ago. And it did lead to the Congress passing the Jobs Act, which legalized crowdfunding and created an on-ramp for IPOs, a bunch of things. But the, the data there was pretty compelling. In the last three decades, 40 million jobs have been created from young high-growth startups, not from the small businesses, the Main Street restaurants, not from the big Fortune 500 companies, from startups. So if you want to create jobs, you've got to focus on, on startups. You can't just focus on Silicon Valley and New York City and Boston, you have to focus on the whole country, and you ha- can't just focus on tech. You have to focus on other sectors like like food, farming, and, food, you know, all kinds of different things. And so, how do you bring that innovation ethos to the rest of the country and other aspects of our lives? And that's what I think the third wave is going to be all about. So, how do you do that? Because most people, you know, I was talking to someone the other day, and we were talking about jobs, and I said, you know, you really have to be an entrepreneur. Everyone has to be an entrepreneur going forward. You well, can't I think everybody just has to have an entrepreneurial mindset, mindset. because even the, the nature of work. I'm not is, talking about creating a company, but yeah. I, I think this is part of what, what now is being uh, debated here in Washington, some call it the gig economy. I prefer calling it the, the flexible Who calls economy. calls it the gig Oh, the gig oh, doing gig on, economy. on basically services. Uber and Handy and things like right. that and because you know, it gives more flexibility to the consumer uh, and convenience. It also gives more flexibility to the worker that uh, we've seen a lot of people that really get more control of their lives. They want to take a morning off to go to their kid's school or they, right. they, they have some other issue they, they need to, to deal with. They have the ability to do that. They didn't have that before. People in, in kind of the kind of professional white collar kind of side of things did. There are a lot of people who, teachers, for example, that could do some freelance work on project work as a, you know, kind of a, working with specific students and kind of you know, helping them uh, tutor on things like that. Some lawyers did that. And there are a lot of people who would say they want to not work full time. They just want to work part time and they work do project work for law firms. Uh, but that same opportunity wasn't available to the broader array of workers. Now it is, whether it be you know driving a car for Uber or cleaning a Task apartment for Handy or, 
or or delivering groceries for Instacart or TaskRabbit or all those. That gives them more you know, flexibility, and that's gone from an idea that didn't exist five years ago. Millions of people are now part of that. Probably will be tens of millions of people. And the amazing thing is when I was a kid growing up, the model was go to work for a big company and stay there forever. Like right. my dad worked for yeah. one company for 60 years. Why don't you tell the people where you work? Do people who not know this? Your original company? My original company. Pizza Hut, right? Well, I, well, my, first, my first job out of, out of college was P&G. P&G. My second job what was What was pizza. the product? Let's remind people. Which one? The shampoo one. Oh, the P&G one was a bound, a, a towelette, a hair conditioner and a dry towelette. And the, and the slogan was, towelette, you bet. <laughs> Pretty innovative, <laughs> How huh? did you not rise to the top ah, of yeah, that exactly. organization? That failed in, in test Nobody market. wanted a towelette I, 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 I learned early on that, that you know, marketers can get you to try something and they can't force you to buy a bad product on a right. persistent you know, basis. And oh, I, I did the right. pizza. But the, my point is I had three jobs in three years. So my right. parents so were kind of freaked P&G, out. Now some people have And then three, you were at Pizza Hut. And then the control video. And P- then, pineapple topping was your big thing. Which is, you know. No, delivery was, was our big thing. That was right. the, back then delivery wasn't very popular. Now right. obviously it's pretty, pretty uh, universal. So I learned a lot of things at both those companies but but thankfully i finally found my my way into the digital world so when you're thinking about if you were a job seeker today because i think jobs is a really interesting topic of where we're going with this because when we begin to really upend the economy and i think we haven't even gotten started yet in terms of where it's right. going and this next wave does hit the big stuff the exactly. cars and food we should go on the road with me on this really you think you know, so? that's a good setup i think we wouldn't get along very well I would tell, you don't want to spend another along. minute no, with me like, do you it'd be like you know three hours and that do you remember that. when we were doing the book you actually looked at me at one point and you said are you still here yeah well yeah. that was a good insight but that was a part. secret what you really well, were saying is, please, please stay longer. Yeah, but then you left us. You I left you. Us. I we left you. Now, Leonsis we offered me a job, Ted Leonsis, at the time, years and years ago. And then he's every he? now and then, yes, I, without I, your I knowledge. such great respect for Ted. I know. I and <laughs> every now and then, he always tells me how rich I would have been had I stayed. But well, now, I like Now you're doing. an entrepreneur. You were working for the man, the, yeah. you know, the Washington Post Company, yeah, and then the Wall Street Journal. Now and I'm then an entrepreneur. You're, then you're an entrepreneur, As part Ron of the Conway. Vox Empire. Vox Empire. Exactly. It is a good empire. It is a very good it's empire. It's a very good empire. It's a great place to work. Innovation and journalism is also Jim, did you hear that? She said it's a great place, place to, to work. work. It is. What, I really, what a brown nose. Oh, no, I am not. <laughs> I'm kidding. He is a great boss, though. In any case, it is also uh, jarring because it's everything that's happening around economies. So let's do some predictions when we finish up. Let's talk about what you really think far out. Like, you're trying to do the visionary thing here, like where it's going. If you had to pull one thing out of this book that you think is the most important thing entrepreneurs have to keep in mind, and, you know, there's always going to be money. There's always going to be a bubble. You know, whether it's up or down doesn't really matter. There's always going to be money's going to flow to where innovation is eventually. What do you think the most critical thing people have to think about moving forward? Well, I think it doesn't matter so much what sector they focus on, but I hope they'll choose to tackle big problems that really can improve people's lives in significant ways. I think if they do that, there's even though it'll be harder and require more perseverance, there's an opportunity to build significant companies that have more barriers to entry because it's hard. It is hard to get in, therefore fewer people will do it. So I think the perseverance is important. But the, I think the number one theme in, in the book is you can't go alone. You have to figure out a way to partner in the third wave. It's not just about dropping the app in the app store and hoping you get you get lucky. And that the skill set around partnerships, not just with you know companies or organizations in different sectors, but with, in this case, also the government on policy, I think is going to be one of the defining attributes of the great iconic entrepreneurs of the, of the third wave. 
And is there any company you think represents? You said Uber, Airbnb, those. I think most of the successful kind of iconic third wave companies don't yet exist. Just as at the beginning of the second wave, Facebook didn't exist and Uber right. didn't exist. And, you know, the, 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 there will be some companies that make the transition, uh, but there will also be a new set of companies that come out of nowhere and, and change the world. And I think that's the place to watch. And I don't think it's just going to be watching it, looking for it in Silicon Valley and New York City and Boston. It's going to surprise China. people. Well, hopefully within this country and these rise of the rest regions, but we are seeing what entrepreneurship can we do to- both. To regionalize that. and number one is it makes sure that crowdfunding works because that levels the playing field for in terms of opportunity uh, it makes it easier for people to raise capital even if they don't have money or don't know people who have uh, have money creating more kind of uh, fearless communities encouraging risk taking in, in different communities making sure mm-hmm. the regulations are, are right i think at a, at a national level we need to once we get through this election cycle figure out a way to pass immigration reform so we mm-hmm. can win what's now a global battle for for talent there's a bunch of things we need to do to make sure we remain the the most uh, innovative entrepreneurial nation. How do you look at this? I, I should have to ask you about the election. What? Do you, what? Who are you backing? I'm not backing anyone. My really? my, my game is to stay out of politics and focus on policy. Why? So I try, it's because, important. Because if policy is important, you don't want to. You don't, because they, this I, is I've, one I've, crazy I've, friggin' I've, election. I've li- isn't it? It's, it is a crazy one. And, yeah. and the, the I've lived in this town for three decades, and I, I, I've tried to stay on the sidelines from politics. And whoever the president is, come January, and whoever is controlling the Congress, I'll try to be. To the extent they want me to be. What a kind of president force. do we need then? A president. Uh, I think what? a bridge builder. I think. I think that he's not a, tough, a wall builder. I think a bridge builder. I'm not going to comment <laughs> on any particular you know candidate. But I think. I think we need to rebuild the center of politics. I think everything on both sides has gotten too extreme. People are talking past each other, and you need to get people in the room, you know, figuring out constructive solutions that allow the country to move forward on a lot of fronts, but particularly yeah. on these issues that I think are core to the. The third wave. How do we make sure that I remind people here that 250 years ago, America itself was a startup. Mm-hmm. It was just an idea. Oh, Steve. And it's true. And America's it, a startup. America's isn't a startup. That the, isn't that a, a rap lyric in Hamilton? I'm not sure. Uh, it should be. It I'll, should I'll be. license it to I him. Think it does. I think it uh, is. I think it is. Well, they stole it from me because I've been saying it for yeah, Have you? I'm going to have to um, talk to him, Lynn, about so copyright. So bringing us together. You know, that is the Swisher candidacy. We're all winners, not losers. Oh, I like that. Yeah, you like uh, that? That's the, that's the slogan. We're yeah, winners. I'm the liberal Trump, in case you're interested. Liberal Trump. Yeah. Now, that's a scary thing. I know. It's true. Last question, if you were 22, what sector would you go into? Like if you, clean slate, young Steve Case. Well, I would probably focus on place, not just uh, the, the specific idea. And that's mm-hmm. why I, I think both within the country and around around the world, been to Africa, been recently to, to Cuba, there's a lot of interesting places that are showing real signs of momentum around entrepreneurship. In terms of what I would do, it, it, it really depends on what your passion is. I mentioned when I was 21, 22, reading The Third Wave by Alvin Toffler, and that helped set a direction for me. Hopefully there's somebody out there who's 21, 22 who finds my book. But was there something you know, now that you go, oh, that's really interesting? Because you own lots, of, you own like a salad place, you own, you own all kind of yoga we're ve- stuff. We're very interested. You own in, half in, of Hawaii, right? Uh, well, no, 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 no. I understand we you have, have many pineapples in Hawaii. We have, uh, we have a little bit of property there. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, but no, I, I think food is a big sector. It's, it hasn't changed much. The big food companies dominate most of the stuff people eat. It's kind of junk food and so i think there is going to be a revolution in food we've backed sweet green which is a fast casual concept kind of mm-hmm. eating away at fast food growing rapidly we've backed revolution foods which is focused on school lunches now expanded into into supermarkets so we do believe that's a sector and that's an example it's not really tech per se but mm-hmm. it is tech enabled it is internet enabled 25 percent of sweet green orders now are on smartphones my guess yeah, is in doing, a few years it'll be 50 we're doing a food tech session at code and we're also going to do a conference i have a chef and i've got the impossible foods people and different i think it's really interesting well i think you're on board here yeah. you're talking about the third wave you're talking about the importance I'm on of the third wave. now you're talking about I'm on the fourth now, wave, now you're, now you're talking about food wave? so you're, is there any more waves you got your surfboard and you're jumping in the waves and and uh, <laughs> oh my god i told 
totally good, didn't realize good the good Hawaiian thing. Do you surf? I do surf. You do? Are you a good surfer? No. No? I'm more of a body surfer than a board Are surfer. You? But I was just in Hawaii. I asked you for suggestions. It's I a know. lovely place. Why don't fun? you just want to go there and just retire? That's my feeling. Because I kind of like my gig now. It's a great great opportunity to invest in entrepreneurs through Revolution, do some great work. Gene really, as you know, leads it with the Case Foundation, things like impact investing and inclusive mm-hmm. entrepreneurship that we care about. And, you know, sitting in D.C., and I said, for been here for a while, I, I, I hopefully can be a useful force in trying to nudge people together, mm-hmm. build some bridges to get some stuff done, particularly around innovation, the entrepreneurship. So I do get back to Hawaii from time to time, but but I'm not kind of ready to hang it up and retire. You and the president are staying here. Well, he's going to stay here for a while. I think yeah. he's going to spend some time in Hawaii, my guess, probably some time in New York, obviously some time in, in Chicago. Yeah, Has he been a good tech president? No, yeah, he has been a good tech president. Yeah. I think he's fo- focused on some of these startup issues, the work that we've done with the, the White House, whether it be the Jobs Act on crowdfunding or, or some of the other things. He, last summer, did the first ever... Uh, kind of startup day, kind mm-hmm. of bringing a lot of different startups in, really focused also on the need for inclusivity and mm-hmm. diversity he in terms of entrepreneurship. just the cable companies today. You know, you know, some of the set-top cable. box issues that we you know, debated around open access you for the internet 20 years that. ago are now becoming kind of uh, front and center. So again, I'm not focusing on politics, but uh, overall I think he has been good on the entrepreneurship issues, technology issues, hopefully the next president, whoever it might be, will take that to the next level. All right, with Steve Case, author. Author, He's now yeah. An author. I just finally decided I want to be more like Kara Swisher. Author, no, that's impossible. You're trying. It's a nice try, though. Um, it's called The Third Wave, An Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future, and he is an entrepreneur. Steve Case, thank you for coming on thank the you, podcast. Thank you, Kara. We appreciate it. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, Code.org founder Hadi Patovi, and Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky, just to name a few. You can find all of those interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. Now that we're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can also find audio from our events like the Code Conference and Peter Kafka's Code Media. And also, you should vote for Recode Decode, which is up for Best Podcast in the 20th Webby Awards. We're up with some very big podcast names like the TED Group and over at the Gimlet Media people. But I feel like you should go with the underdog, Recode Decode, and vote for us so we can win. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.